This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Fight Back took a closer look this week at the testimony of long-term care minister Marilee Fullerton before the COVID-19 LTC commission. Reading it, we see that very early on in the pandemic, she was aware of the specific and devastating dangers to vulnerable nursing home residents. She talked about advocating for safeguards like more PPE, personal protective equipment. But Dr. Fullerton was either unwilling or unable to push those concerns forward and protect those for whom she is responsible. There are also questions about whether Dr. Fullerton ever fully understood the emergency nature of the situation, as opposed to her essential mission, which is reforming long-term care for the future. The testimony also leaves a lot of questions about the time between the first and even more deadly second wave of COVID-19. Joining Libby on Wednesday to discuss, David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Marketing Officer at CARP, as well as Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, a professor at Ontario Tech University who specializes in family caregiving and is an advocate for those in long-term care facilities. I eviscerated the Dr. David Williams testimony, which was literally the bomb that kept going off, because ultimately you saw a play-by-play between the two of them kind of saying, well, they're in charge. No, they're in charge. No, they're in charge. There's a lot of passing the buck. Um, But ultimately, you know, both Elliot and Fullerton would say that, you know, he had the final call. So um, the, the fact that he, you know, flagrantly ignored the advice before him. I mean, like he admitted to knowing that asymptomatic and symptomatic staff were going to work sick because they needed the money and they didn't provide paid sick leave. You knew you could have saved so many lives by just offering paid sick leave and hiring more workers to let those workers who are sick stay home. And you didn't. You, these are decisions that cost thousands of lives. And Fullerton herself was quoted several places you know, indicating that she knew asymptomatic, uh, you know, transmission was, was probably going to be bad. Hello. Allowing PPE to be diverted away from long-term care and sent to correctional facilities and hospitals. Okay, uh, David, um, on the subject of PPE, it was really interesting. She she said that she was concerned about it at the very beginning, <laughs> even before it was declared a, a pandemic. What became of that? Well, I'm, I, I find that interesting, and I also try to read through these 600 pages as a layman, of course, but um, it's interesting that you wonder whether she talked to uh, Christine Elliott, because Christine Elliott was the Minister of Long-Term Care before the ministry was uh, split into two, health and long-term care, and during her regime, the obsolete equipment from the past had been systematically destroyed because it had expired, 
and it had not been replenished, although there were cabinet documents going back to 19, uh, 19, 2007 that predicted this exact thing. The wording is quite chilling, that we're going to be in competition for equipment. It's not made in Canada. There's going to be a, a race to get our hands on. we got a stockpile now. They destroyed the stockpiles, and uh, John Callahan, the counsel for the commission, who I think was fantastic, Amazing. asks Christine Elliott, were you aware that it wasn't being replenished? No. And she was the minister responsible at the time. And uh, why wasn't it being replenished? Well, we had this new central purchasing system, and I wasn't aware that it had got caught up in that vortex. That's my word, not hers. But she didn't even know it wasn't being replenished. So now it lands in Fullerton's lap, and the, the two of them even talk. If you read their testimony, it seems like they're on different planets. What kind of... Um explanation or excuse Dr. Stamatopoulos did they give for not being ready for the second they wave? They didn't. They didn't. They didn't. They, they were deflecting. So when they asked them about Quebec, they, then, you know, Mr. Fullerton was confused and said, well, hold on, that's orderlies. Yeah, orderlies is the same term for PSW. So why didn't you do the same? She, they were deflecting. They didn't actually answer the question. It's difficult to find staff. Uh, you know, it's really hard. They said the same thing about inspectors when they called them out on that. Why didn't you have more inspectors? You should have been hiring. In a pandemic, you don't you know, Callahan was so, frankly, disgusted, saying, how do you not attribute more resources for inspectors on IPAC during a pandemic? Are you kidding me? And it was just, they didn't have proper answers. They just did not have proper answers. No, and, they went and, and we saw it, what happened. And I, I think the uh, doctor will uh, back me up. They did a lot of, that's a good point. It's something we have to look at for the future. Yeah, right? That's yeah. a good point. Yeah. We have, that's a fair question. We have to now. look at that for the yeah. future. That's a good point. We have to look at that for the future. Yeah. The upshot of this, Dr. Stamatopoulos, is this going to go anywhere? Is this going to collect dust like so many other reports? I mean, if you look at, you know, the history as a predictor of the future, it's going to be another, you know, door marker, um, which is sad because there's a lot of really good evidence in here and which is why I'm taking my fight to national standards. Long-term care advocate Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, professor at Ontario Tech University, and David Kravitz, chief marketing officer at CARP and vice president at Zoomer Media. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On Wednesday, members of Canada's advisory panel on COVID-19 immunization recommended what is turning into a game changer in the vaccine rollout. They suggest the interval between the first and second doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines be stretched to four months. It's a decision that would allow more people to get first doses sooner. But many epidemiologists and scientists consider it very risky because the evidence just isn't there. Dr. Brad Waters is executive vice president of science and research at University Health Network. Libby spoke with him on Thursday. My initial reaction was a little bit one of surprise. You've called it a population-based experiment. Well, it is. Um, you know, the, um, the the rest of the world um, is doing this uh, pretty much on label, uh, according to the way the trials were done. The one country that has made a decision to do it differently is the UK, um, and they did this first. They made a decision early on to space their doses three months apart, you know, again, um, extrapolating and, and taking that risk that it would still be effective. And we're starting to get real-world data from the UK from that really population-level experiment. They've, they've done that. 
And uh, that's helpful for the rest of the world. And, you know, as we learn more things, we can continue to modify our own decisions based on that data as it comes in. Um, and what we have right now is, is good data, you know, we're spacing those doses up to two months apart. But to go to four really puts us out in a, you know, uh, in an area where, where, where we're alone, um, where others aren't doing that. And, um, you know, we're going to see what the, what the, what things look like based on that. We're, we're doing that experiment here in Canada. And, uh, it may very well turn out to, um, you know, to, to be the right decision and, uh, you know, to get more people vaccine and, and to protect more people early, which is the basis for doing this. But, it comes with risk, and it comes with risk around that you know, we simply don't have data, we don't have evidence that it's going to be as effective. And that's, you know, only something we'll know looking back after doing this. Yeah, I have a question about another NASI decision, and that's on AstraZeneca and not using it in, in people over 65. And that's what they recommended, though they made that recommendation just as Germany and France reversed that and said, actually, the real world world data shows that it's fine for people over 65. Do you have a view of that? Yeah, well, this is what, you know, why I I said I was a bit surprised by their their recommendation, because it it does contrast with that one. Um, You know, know, in that, in the trial with AstraZeneca, there weren't a lot of individuals that were over 65. And and NASI took a conservative approach and said, you know, the clinical trial data just isn't there. That's why we're making this recommendation. But um, you know, there is real-world data suggesting it's effective in other other places. And as you say, France and Germany have reversed course there. Um, and I think you know, all of the evidence suggests that uh, this vaccine is is equally effective and equally safe in in that population of individuals. So um, you know, NASI may revisit that. I hope they do. And my my real concern around all of this is that is is around the you know, the trust with the general public on the decisions that are being made and the basis for them. It's, you know, vaccine hesitancy is a real issue. And um, we want to reassure as many people as we can uh, around the need to get uh, these vaccines, the safety of the vaccines, and they they really are our way out of this. Do you think that political considerations uh, crept in? I mean, in terms of getting everyone vaccinated by the end of September, which is the Prime Minister's promise? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think political, um, you know, issues factor into just about every decision that that gets made. Um, It's hard to parse all of that out. So, you know, I think what was sort of considered aspirational six months ago is, is, is considered inadequate now. And you've seen the U.S. wants to have everyone done by May. And I think we'll continue to see pressure to push those timelines up. And I think that's part of what's driving this, the change in the, in the timing of the, of the two doses now, too, is simply to try and, and get more vaccine to, to more people earlier because of the same kind of pressure. I hope everybody gets a chance to get their vaccine as soon as possible. Dr. Brad Waters, Executive Vice President of Science and Research at University Health Network. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break... The verdict in the ban attack trial gives relief to many. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. 
Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. To the relief of all of the victims' family members, members of the autism community, and the people of Toronto, the man who planned and carried out the Young Street van attack on April 23, 2018, was found criminally responsible for his actions. On Wednesday, Superior Court Justice Anne Malloy ruled that Alec Manassian is guilty of 10 counts of first-degree murder and 16 counts of attempted murder, dismissing his lawyer's argument that he is not criminally responsible due to autism spectrum disorder. The judge said, quote, He thought about committing these crimes over a considerable period of time and made a considered decision to proceed. Notwithstanding its horrific nature, he has no remorse for it and no remorse for his victims. To further understand the verdict and repercussions, Libby was joined on Wednesday by criminal defense lawyer Ari Goldkind. My chances of success for the defense, I pegged at around 0.000000, add a couple more zeros, then 0.5. That's not a knock against his defense team at all. In fact, his defense team could argue in some way they were actually successful today in some of their legal arguments, not the ultimate finding or factual finding, but uh, his defense team did a heck of a job with very, very little to work with, having to go as far as flying in through Zoom, so flying in in a pre-COVID way, um, somebody from the United States to put forward the defense they wanted. But even that witness, who I was skeptical about from the first time I even Googled him, uh, that witness was not able to carry the day. And uh, Judge Malloy uh, said that while the defense argument certainly had some merit to be brought, and in certain circumstances, autism spectrum disorder could get in the door uh, of NCR-type defenses, she essentially said, Uh, If I could make the uh, answer concise, Mr. Manassian is evil. He planned and deliberated this. His quest for infamy was obvious. He knew what he was doing was not only legally wrong, but morally wrong. In fact, that's the reason he did it, is because he knew it was morally wrong and would make him famous. And she essentially said, uh, too bad, so sad to him, and going to go to jail for the rest of his life. That's the nutshell version of 68 Pages, which, by the way, everybody should read. Is it going to be for life, or will he be eligible for parole in 20 or 25 so, years? Yeah, so this is the question I've been talking about all morning, and to me it's the more interesting question now, and here's why. And Libby, you've got to paint this picture in your mind, and so does your audience. Visualize this. For many, many years, if not decades, in our criminal justice system, you would get a life sentence. But life, as you know, in Canada means you're still eligible for parole after 25 years. You'll remember that from time to time, Paul Bernardo raises his ugly head for parole, right? Very different than the States, where life means life in certain sort of more capital uh, murder cases. And by life, I mean life, you're going to die in jail. Many years ago, the Harper government, a government that you're almost not allowed to talk about anymore in the criminal justice system, sort of like Voldemort or something, the Voldemort government called the Harper government said, wait a minute. You can kill two or three or four people, but how is it that for each life taken, the extra life does not matter, emphasize, does not matter for the purposes of parole? In other words, you can kill one person or five people, you could still apply for parole after 25 years. The Harper government put an end to that, said the judges could sentence people based on the value of each life, 
And right now, that's the decision in this case, because just recently, Libby, judges have been given consecutive parole ineligibility periods. If you kill two people, for example, 50. If you kill three people, 75. But the Quebec Court of Appeal just struck that down as unconstitutional because that was cruel and unusual punishment to a killer. So uh, the the answer, the short answer is it's it's up in the air whether or not he will be eligible for parole. Yes. So here's what's going to be. What's going to be is that the Supreme Court is looking at the issue I just explained to you in 30 seconds. And it really is that simple. Judges have taken the invitation to value human life in Canada as each life has a value. One decision in the Quebec Court of Appeal said, no, unconstitutional and it's cruel and unusual. It doesn't give somebody a hope of breathing the same air as Libby's Nimer one day. The Supreme Court will weigh in on this at some point, probably in the next uh, year. So the Manassian decision, they'll either arrive at something that all of the parties can agree with and live with, or they will litigate this issue once the Supreme Court gives its decision. So don't think that the Manassian decision is coming anytime in the next month. Criminal defense lawyer Ari Goldkind in conversation with Libby Snymer on Wednesday. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It's a royal dust-up. The latest round of allegations and counter-allegations between Buckingham Palace sources and the Duke and Duchess of Sussex erupted this week. Much of this, it seems, has been prompted by the news that Harry and Meghan gave a tell-all interview to Oprah Winfrey. Prince Harry and his wife have long-standing grievances against the British press and Buckingham Palace about the way they, particularly Meghan, have been treated. Now palace sources have shot back leaking allegations that there were formal complaints against Meghan for harassing and bullying her staff. Allegations which Harry and Meghan say are falsehoods intended to smear them. All of this news comes as more than half of Canadians no longer find the monarchy relevant. Libby was joined by Alison Eastwood, editor-in-chief of Hello Canada on Thursday, to talk about the developments. There's so many factors at play right now, Libby. Um, obviously, this is concerning and disappointing all around. I'm sure from you know Harry and Meghan's perspective, as well as the palace's perspective, Yes, the I mean, The Times is possibly the most prestigious newspaper in Britain. So, you know, this isn't coming from the Daily Mail or The Sun. It's coming from what they call a quality newspaper. Um, and so, you know, when they when they print stories like this, people pay attention and it has to be taken seriously. And the palace has taken the unprecedented step of issuing a statement saying that um, their HR team is looking into the circumstances and conducting a full investigation. They have a dignity at work policy, which they've had in place for a number of years. It does not and will not tolerate bullying or harassment. Prince William, as many royal watchers know, is you know one of his big um, platforms is, is anti-bullying and mental health um, So this must be very concerning for him as well. That said, um, of course, Harry and Meghan's team is is denying the allegations and saying that, you know, they themselves are being harassed. So it's, you know, it's very much a 
he said, she said situation right now um, between the two camps. And it's very sad that, you know, they're being perceived as two camps. Um, but as, as you mentioned, there's the, the Oprah Winfrey tell-all interview coming out. And um, there are tantalizing peaks at it that seem to suggest that, um, you know, uh, comments are being made about the royal family that aren't particularly positive. Whether I'll bet. That, you know, whether that's the spin that they're giving us in order to make everybody watch, we don't know yet. You know, I think it will be one of the most watched TV interviews ever. I'm sure it will be. I have a couple of questions, Alison. So one thing that I find strange, I can see that uh, certain members of the palace would leak this as a counter to what they think is coming out. But in terms of the palace saying they're going to investigate, isn't isn't that, you know, uh, closing the barn door after the horses have, es- has, have escaped? They're not, you yeah, know... Yeah, well, it certainly does beg the question of... of- you know, why it wasn't looked into at the time, you know, because supposedly this happened in 2017, uh, 2018, and um, including on on their royal tours. But there are various explanations for that. And at this point, I, you know, I just, I don't know that we can get into <laughs> where the truth really lies. You know, perhaps it's somewhere in between. I would say it's a very different climate now. Um, people are very sensitive to accusations of bullying. And of course, it is something that Harry and Meghan have, um, you know, have talked about a lot. And it is also one of their platforms. And they've spoken a lot about, you know, cyberbullying, and how Meghan herself has been a victim of that. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? <laughs> um I don't know. I mean, I, we're just we're just waiting to see, um, along with everybody else, um, you know, talking to our colleagues in London, just uh, to see if we can, you know, get any information about what's coming out of the palace and 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 why now. Um, um, I would say, I don't think this is any sort of intentional campaign on on the part of the royal family, and I guess we would just have to wait and see. Uh, what comes out in the next few days. Alan Eastwood, Editor-in-Chief of Hello Canada. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Todd in Pennsylvania phoned in while listening to Fight Back on ZoomerRadio.ca with his opinion on the judge's ruling in the Toronto van attack. I'm grateful for that judge in Canada, because in the United States, victims of crime are left hanging because the perpetrators know exactly what they did, but yet oftentimes they're found not guilty by reason of insanity. And that's just, in my view, unacceptable. 
Dorothy in Mississauga came to fight back well-prepared with her questions on the COVID-19 vaccination process. I am also dismayed by how the vaccine priority is being handled. The issue cannot be blamed slowly on, solely on the lack of supplies. If Ontario had followed the National Advisory Committee recommendations that those who are most at risk should be done first, the oldest age groups would have received their first shots by now. We have also all heard about how some people are receiving the vaccine who are not the highest risk and who are not a frontline worker in high-risk areas. So my question is, I would like to know who is on the committee making the decisions and what statistics are they being used? Are they medical statistics? Secondly, why is Ontario not following the National Advisory Committee in distributing the vaccine? Why are the answers not transparent, considering that in Ontario, 96% of the deaths are people aged 60 and over? And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Richard in North York, who phoned to offer his opinion on who should be vaccinated against COVID-19 next. Uh, I have difficulty understanding how the uh, homeless basically are taking priority. And I would add the comment that I agree that older people should be the priority, but there's another group of people that are totally forgotten, and those are disability people, people with pulmonary problems, uh, people who are actually got serious lung problems that are going to work, they're in the community, making a contribution, doing their best, and they're not even talked about. Everybody talks about age, shelter people, and so on, but what about people with disabilities and pulmonary problems? That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.